0: Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm deeply honored to be joined by today's guest, mystic and Sufi teacher Llewellyn Von Lee, author of some of the most meaningful books I've ever read. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. Chilipad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me/thread to get your Chilipad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit wwwsleepsleepme slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct.
1: We're aware that we're in an ecological crisis. We are destroying our own ecosystem. We're aware this loss of biodiversity, these beautiful species going extinct. And who is the prime partner for us is the earth. But you go to an ecological conference like they are having now in, in Egypt, and who listens to the earth? Where is the voice of the earth herself? She's not heard, she's not asked, nobody asks the earth. And she is this ancient being and so wise. She has been through mass extinctions before. She has this indigenous people knew how to ask and how to listen and how to talk to the earth. And that's why a lot of my writings recently are about trying to find a way to reconnect, to regain this way of being present with the earth, of listening to the earth, just being with her, and so her voice can be heard. Because if we don't make that connection, I don't see how we can go forwards into a living future.
0: So says my guest today, Llewellyn Vaughn Lee, Sufi mystic, PhD, lecturer, and a prolific author. I have been reading through his books in a type of fever. They are some of the most powerful and clarifying treatises on spirituality and what this whole experience is about that I've ever read. Von Lee began following the Naqshbandi-Sufi path at the age of 19, guided by Irina Tweedy, who brought this particular Indian branch of Sufism to the West. He eventually became her successor and moved to Point Reyes, California, where he founded the Golden Sufi Center, continuing to expand the reach of his Sufi lineage, making its teachings ever more available to the Western seeker. While he is currently in retreat as a teacher— He recently launched a podcast called Stories for a Living Future that is beautiful. His many books provide a detailed exploration of the stages of spiritual and psychological transformation experienced on the Sufi path. More recently, his writing has focused on our spiritual responsibility to the earth in the present time of transition, awakening our awareness of oneness with the world and all that is in it, and the presence of the Amina Mundi, or the world soul, Today, Vaughn Lee joins a podcast to discuss one of his latest books, Spiritual Ecology, The Cry of the Earth, which is a collection of essays from some of our most esteemed leaders across faiths and dimensions, including Joanna Macy, Thich Nhat Hanh, Wendell Berry, Richard Rohr, and Vandava Shiva. As he explains today, we have lost awareness of the sacredness of creation, a loss that has allowed us to abuse an earth regarded as unfeeling, unknowing matter this is the spiritual root of our ecological crisis. He implores us to follow the thread that allows us to once again live in direct connection with creation, noting that real change can only happen when we regain our magical consciousness, grow closer to the lumen natura, nature's light, and allow ourselves to fall in love with the earth once more. Llewellyn does a remarkable job of placing our human story within the story of the earth, In turn, he leaves us yearning to rediscover our place within the whole, and thereby reaffirm our primal connection with our sacred home. Okay, let's get to our conversation. So we're going to talk today primarily about sacred ecology, and... Although I have so many questions. In fact, you know, Rumi was Sufi, right? So most people Yeah, and that's most people's introduction, I guess they probably don't know that. But can you explain for the uninitiated the basic
1: tenets? Sufism is a mystical path to God, to reality that takes place within the heart through the energy of love. It's what is central to Sufism is The relationship of lover and beloved. For us, God is the beloved. It's a love affair. As Rumi says, step out of the circle of time and into the circle of love. And it's this whole mystery of divine love that takes place within the heart. And you go deeper and deeper within the heart. The Sufi has actually mapped out the heart, the spiritual heart. Just as we have a physical heart, we also have a spiritual heart. In Indian spirituality, it's called the heart chakra. And there are these chambers of the heart, and you go deeper and deeper within the heart into the states of oneness with God, into states of bliss, and beyond into the formless, and beyond that into truth. But really, it's a love affair. The central essence of Sufism is a love affair with God. Sufi says there are as many ways to God as there are human beings, as many as the breaths of the children of men. And we each have our own way of going to God, and some people need to go via love, by this divine love affair that takes us from the illusion of separation, that we are separate from God, into the truth that we are one with God. Like Rumi said somewhere, the minute I heard my first love story, I started looking for you, not knowing how blind I was. Lovers don't finally meet somewhere they're in each other all along and it's this mm. realization that we are always with god and there is nothing other than god there is only one great sufi ibn Arabi. Ibn al Arabi talks about the oneness of being the unity of being and for me that you know i am by nature a traditional mystic i met my teacher when i was 19 she'd just come back from india she was an elderly Russian-born woman, Irina Tweedy. she just come back from India, where she'd been trained by a Sufi master. In fact, she was the first woman to be given this specific spiritual training in this system. And I looked in her eyes. She had these amazing, piercing blue eyes. I was 19. i was been practicing yoga and meditation, but I'd never met what you would call an enlightened human being and she lived in this little room in North London beside the train tracks where we would meet, a small group of us young people. And I would remember looking in her eyes and I knew that she knew, and I wanted that knowledge more than anything. I could have imagined before I was brought up in a what I call a gray middle-class English childhood, sent off to boarding school at the age of seven, coal bars, Latin, Greek, I don't think the word love was ever spoken in my childhood. I had no knowledge of feelings or emotions or anything. And suddenly I was in this little room with this white-haired old lady who had just come back from being with this Sufi master in India. And I wanted what she had, so I sat there. And in India it's called satsang, sitting in the presence of the teacher. And I sat there for many, many years going deep within in meditation. I love meditation. I always love meditation. It's just stamped into my being ever since I was 16 and I first started to meditate. And I, I found this truth within the heart and had many, many experiences of what I would call divine love, particularly from somebody who didn't know what love was growing up with an alcoholic mother and an absent father and boarding school and sports and 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 then I began to experience that this oneness of love happened not just inwardly within the heart, but also was experienced in the world around me. This unity of this oneness, this divine oneness, that you see that everything is a living expression of, of oneness. And I was sent here to California in the early 90s with my family and we made a small Sufi center out here in the hills, and we lived in the spiritual community in London for a long time. My wife looked after Irina Tweedy, Mrs. Tweedy, as she liked to be called, and then we were sent here, and for the first year or so, it was very quiet. We'd had so many people in London around us, and, and I would walk the hills here, the beautiful trails in the hills, and I had this experience that everything is one, that all the trees, all the leaves, all the animals, the paths, the ocean, the sky, it was all one being. And so I began to experience that this oneness within the heart was also belonged to the outer world. And then in the early 2000s, I had a series of visions in which I was shown that this oneness which was at the time a very fringe idea, it hadn't entered popular culture, was really one of the cornerstones of the next step in our human evolution, that as a civilization, if we were going to, we needed to step out of this illusion of separation, that we are separate from the earth, or even separate from each other. And that we are one part of one living beings extraordinary living being we call the earth which is so beautiful so incredible in which we are abusing so much and that really drew me into the field of sacred ecology to try to understand what we are doing to this earth why we are destroying polluting desecrating this incredibly beautiful being that I have the good fortune to see around me in it's beauty every day I live. Now I'm looking out over the bay and where the tide comes in and out and the egrets, I can hear squawking in the distance. And what are we doing to it? Why have we forgotten that it is so beautiful? It is so, it is sacred. And then I went deeper, you know, Rumi, he says, return to the root of the root of your own self that you have to find the root. If you have a problem, if you have an issue, you have to find the root. This is part of the central mystical practice. You go deep within yourself. You you uncover, you uncover. The Sufi talks about the veils that separate us from reality. That You uncover them. You go deeper and deeper and deeper. And and as I say, you go deeper within your own heart. You discover that you are one with God. You always were one with God. That can never be anything else, because how can there be two? This is when I am he whom I love and he whom I love is me. But in the outer world, to try to understand what is happening to our world, I realized that we are in a way unique as a culture in that we have lost this awareness of the sacred nature of creation. It was at the foundation of almost all previous cultures. And because we lost this awareness, This allowed us to abuse the earth. I think, you know, it was regarded in the early times of, like Newton, as unfeeling matter. It's just, it's just unfeeling. It has no soul. But if you go deeper, of course, you you find there is a soul. You find that it is a spiritual being, just as we are spiritual beings. How can we be separate? And then I researched this a bit and there is, of course, the ancient tradition of the anima mundi, the soul of the world, which belongs in the Renaissance and even earlier than that. And and that's why when I wrote this or edited this compilation of spiritual teachings, I I asked all the spiritual teachers and visionaries I knew about what they thought was the spiritual root of this ecological crisis and and I edited this book, Spiritual Ecology, and I called it Spiritual Ecology, the cry of the earth. Because if you listen deeply, and listening is, of course, a very feminine quality, which we everybody wants to talk, but nobody wants to listen. And if you listen deeply, you can hear the earth crying, the soul of the earth crying. And what does this mean that... This mother, this one spirit is crying and we don't know how to listen. We don't know how to hear. And that is why I was drawn into all of this, trying to understand why we have become alienated. One of the earliest voices of spiritual ecology, Thomas Berry, he wrote about this and, and he says how we have broken the great conversation. We are not listening. We are only talking to ourselves. We are not listening to the rivers. We are not talking to the rivers. We have broken the great conversation. And so I tried to follow, it's interesting, you talk about your podcast being about threads. I always, in my life, always tried to follow a thread. It's like woven between the worlds. And I followed this thread back in that we have to learn again to reconnect to the earth as a spiritual being and, If we're going to continue this journey together with the Earth over the next centuries, we have to reconnect. We have to learn to listen. What is happening to the Earth at this time?
0: I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout. My late brother in law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really, I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge, to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints and they do a beautiful and speedy job making them the perfect place for holiday gifts as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame. Whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, metals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. Throughout the book, there are various, as you mentioned, spiritual teachers who talk Mm -hmm. about their perceptions. And some of it is this idea, and at least the Judeo Christian world that we've been banished from paradise, right? This is not paradise. This is some other world apart from God, and how insidious some of that programming is in Mm -hmm. our minds, and that we are not that we are supposed to be stewards, yet we we treat the earth as something to, to ravage and plunder. And then you talked about Newton and Descartes, and this, the birth of science, and this idea that I can't remember who said this, but it was so, such a stunning phrase. One of the contributors wrote about how we have decided to learn about nature mm-hmm. rather than learning from nature. This complete distinction. And in the definition of nature, humans are not included. According to sure,
1: sure. <laughs> the dictionary it sort of starts there. <laughs> very strange. I mean, you know, one of the one of the most pressing points I feel is that we have all we're aware that we're in an ecological crisis. We are destroying our own ecosystem. We're aware this loss of biodiversity; these beautiful species going extinct. And who is the prime partner for us is the Earth. But you go to a ecological conference like they are having now in in Egypt. And who listens to the earth? Where is the voice of the earth herself? Mm. She's not heard. She's not asked. Nobody asks the earth. And she is this ancient being and so wise. She has been through mass extinctions before. She has this indigenous people knew how to ask and how to listen and how to talk to the earth. And that's why a lot of my writings recently are about trying to find a way to reconnect, to regain this way of being present with the earth, of listening to the earth, of just being with her. And so her voice can be heard, because if we don't make that connection, I don't see how we can go forwards into a living future. Hmm. And it's interesting, you, you write about, you talk about, this loss of eden and i know that you studied milton but this is important because it's this dominant myth we are we are we have to live by the sweat of our brows very different to indigenous people who live in an earth full of generosity full of kindness it's a very different world view and something very interesting happened to me the at the beginning of the pandemic I stopped teaching I'd been teaching Sufism for 30 years lecturing and teaching and just before the pandemic I stopped I was very burnt out I just 30 years was I'd given everything I had to give and and I found myself drawn to nature just to heal myself I was really battered and I walked on the beaches and the trails here where I live and there was an ancient memory began to resurface inside of me. Whether it lost paradise, when the earth was alive, we were a part of it. And I'm quite convinced that the early human beings who lived as a subsi- who, who lived as small groups and as gatherers, they lived in direct connection to this magical dimension of creation that that we lost part of the rational consciousness has censored it from us and i have a pressing need to to reaffirm this primal connection we have with nature as something sacred and something magical because nature is magical a, a tree is is not just timber it's a spirit mm. and many people go and sit under a tree and they feel this communion and actually a tree i don't know if you know that a tree can take away your psychological problems if you sit with sit under a tree it can actually absorb emotional toxicity and and help you and many people have a tree or, that they can sit under and they feel this presence this and there was a time before the fall and i think we need to reconnect with that There's, i don't know if you know the poem fern hill by Dylan Thomas the welsh poet i don't know Well, he talks about this magical moment that when everything was alive for the first time, it's a child's view. And there's just one, I was thinking about sharing it. There's a a sentence that he writes from Fern Hill. And the sun grew round that very day, so it must have been after the birth of the simple light in the first spinning place, the spellbound horses walking warm out of the whinnying green stable onto the fields of praise mm. and that is that moment before the fall which is alive is is like that moment when a spring in springtime when a buds open and color comes and it doesn't have to be lost in some mythological past but you can feel it it's every moment coming alive for the first time
0: yeah. One thing that strikes me too, and was Gurdjieff a Sufi as well, G.I. Gurdjieff? Mm-hmm. He was, I know, yeah. And he is over my head, much of what he says. And I have to look to people like Cynthia Bourgeot to translate him for me. But in his great cosmic ray and his mm-hmm. articulation of these worlds, that I feel like is also So resonant and yet so missing this idea that we are feeding energy up and down this ray of creation. Because at least I grew up with this idea not that I had a a spiritual or religious upbringing at all, but that it was a one way transfer Uh down to us. And what he articulates is a two way and the essential nature of co creation Mm -hmm. with the divine, which is so much a much more beautiful. Feeling, But I, I feel like we feel so silly and powerless when, in fact, we obviously have way too much power. <laughs>
1: well, 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 that is because this, you know, one of the great unspoken tragedies is how we have been censored from a certain spiritual awareness, from a certain, Cynthia talks about the imaginal world, this intermediate world between the world of the senses and the world of the soul belongs very much to the sufi tradition ibn al-arabi the great sufi writes a lot about it and we are part of this living spiritual breathing well go back to the breath look the the breath is the basis of many spiritual practices whether it's yoga or sufism or a mantra it's the breath Mm -hmm. right and it's become part of the mindfulness tradition awareness of breath and there is this cycle this most basic cycle in the human being breath without breath we wouldn't be here there would be no life and with ev- but what is not so well understood is the spiritual dimension of the breath with every breath the soul comes into manifestation on the out on the out breath and then there is this moment between the out breath and the in breath and then with the in breath it goes back to the soul goes back to its own plane. And there is this moment between the in-breath and the out-breath, which is actually a moment of bliss when you experience the reality of the soul. And it's that Mm. continual cycle from the world of mystery, from the world of the soul into this world, where it meets this sacred quality of creation. I was a hidden treasure and I longed to be known, so I created the world. And it's this whole mystery of divine revelation, which is why nature is supposed to be the first book of revelation, which is around us all the time. But our rational consciousness has censored that. It's like it's burnt the books, like when the early Christians burnt all the pagan books. We've been denied that sacred heritage in which, well, the alchemists say, as above, so below, there is this inbreathing and outbreathing of life. And it is, as you said, it is co-creation. Everything and one of the experiences of a mystic is you you experience how everything is alive with divine presence, and everything is this in-breathing and out-breathing of this divine spark, and it's within our hearts, and it's also within creation. And this is what we have to reclaim. God is not in heaven. God is everywhere. Yes, there is heaven. Heaven's very beautiful. You can go there in meditation. There are angels. I love angels. They are my dearest companions. I couldn't live without angels, without the angelic world. They are beings of light. Incredibly beautiful. They heal us. They can help you. I don't know why we have... Every, Every child has their own guardian angel this world in matter is also living sacred being is alive with light the alchemists call it the lumen naturae i studied carl jung a lot and he reclaimed that tradition of the alchemists there is a mm-hmm. there are two lights there is the lumen dei, which is the light of the divine and you can go into meditation and you can go there it's unbelievable if you stay there too long you get blinded you it's so bright, the light of God, the transcendent aspect of God. But there is also lumen naturae, the light within nature. And we have cut ourselves off from that. And part of my what I'm trying to do in my writing is to to find this hidden pathway back to this quality within nature that belongs to our heritage. It's only... I studied Shakespeare. I think you studied Shakespeare too. One of my, I used to teach it too. I was an English high school teacher. That's another story. And the Midsummer Night's Dream and most wonderful character in Midsummer Night's Dream is Puck, the merry wanderer of the night. And he belongs to this magical part of nature. And this was like the last time when that was what, 16th century beginning to be faded away from English consciousness. It was still present. Puck, everybody in the audience knew Puck. He was not some fantastical being. You didn't need psychedelics to get there. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, he was this magical person that made people fall in love when they shouldn't have fallen in love. And they knew that nature was alive in that way because they lived much closer to the elemental world. And then soon after, 17th century, the birth of science, reason, rational mind, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, which is absurd, because I can tell you as a mystic, (laughs) you can be very present with no thoughts. In fact, it's one of the mystical meditation states, (laughs) Zen meditation, empty mind, and you're very much alive, more alive than when you have thoughts, actually. And then we cut ourselves off from it. And to me, that is the great unspoken tragedy of the present time, that we've cut ourselves off from the inner worlds. You, you, Cynthia Borjo talks a lot about the inner worlds and the awareness of the inner worlds. And, you know, I was an English schoolboy, and I found myself in a little room in North London sitting in the presence of a white-haired Russian woman in which the inner worlds were just present all around her. There were more beings in that room than I could name, and the miracles happened. And, and I've lived in that environment for now, you know, 70 years. And I can't imagine what it's like just to live in a rational, three-dimensional world that's like a flat earth. How do you manage? How do you <laughs> know what to do? How do you get help? How do you get healing? How do you... I mean you know I have children and grandchildren how many times I have prayed for them and that, that they get help that they get that this mystery that is life can touch their outer lives and their inner lives their body and their soul and you know you know what that's like it's mm-hmm. this this world yeah. is a mystery I grew up in such a gray world of just money and boarding school and and then the world came alive for me and I'm just trying to give a little bit back to say there is a hidden pathway. It is like where I live. There are, there are a lot of deer outside my house. They come and eat in the, the leaves and the grass in the garden. And in, in the spring, in the early summer, it's so beautiful to see the, the young fawns and with their mothers. And it's like being well, being back in Eden somewhere. And there are these little trails because around us there is deeper forest. And there are these little trails that lead from our lawn, it's not a tended lawn, it's just wild grass, going into the forest. And I try to say there are these little hidden trails that can take us back to this magical Mm -hmm. consciousness. And if we don't regain that magical consciousness, we can have all the discussions about carbon emissions and biodiversity, but the earth is so much more than that and we need her help if we are to help to heal this damaged world. We need her magic. We need her wisdom. We need her wonder.
0: I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlet and oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I was listening to your podcast and you were talking about the deer trails and this idea too that indigenous cultures had these original instructions. And we can't obviously, and you were making this point, There's we can't go back to indigenous ways of living but can we reconnect in some way to something essential and in my experience not that i am i am sort of on a very low rung on my quest to to understand but that as you become closer to that animating light your interest in the more consumer materialistic parts of the world starts to fade. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly something that has to happen for for all of us. And and I also, I was reading, including the earth in our prayers, and you were talking about how so often spirituality has now become a process of personal evolution or mm-hmm. personal, and that that's not really the point, right? It's no. to move past our ego to to heal the whole. What are you hoping to see in this new era? What do you think is, we're being called to do?
1: You know, just as there are as many ways to God as there are human beings, I think each human being is unique. And for example, my daughter is very involved in humanitarian work. She actually mm. met her husband in Ukraine at the end of the last war, and she was helping mm-hmm. people with that. And I think different people are called to work in different ways. And this is to me, this is very important. There are I have tremendous admiration for the young activist Greta Thunberg, who has brought this awareness, this vital awareness to a bigger consciousness and to young people crying out for a future being stolen from them. I say for wildflower meadows they may never see. And to me, that's a very important work. And it's a very important work to reduce carbon emissions, to restore wetlands, wild places, to stop this loss of biodiversity. And there are many people who have talents, who are drawn into this work, this activist work. Now, there are also people who are looking a little bit further down the road, and they say we're heading for a very bit difficult time in humanity. There's a new word, polycrisis. I don't know whether you've come across this. Of all the cascading crises that are happening, we had the, we had the pandemic, we have the financial crisis, we have the war in Ukraine, we have the climate crisis. And they are saying that we need to develop resilience to weather this coming time, that the option is not just to to go into a bunker with food and guns, but what are the qualities we need? And I believe, for example, that loving kindness is more important than stockpiling provisions. And then there are people who are looking a little bit further and they are, how can we transition to a... Sustainable future. There's in I don't know if you know in the United Kingdom there was a transition town movement that started in Devon in Totnes, Mm. and they're looking. They for many years they've been looking to a post carbon environmental future, and there's also an eco village movement in Europe that is connecting people all around the world who have eco villages, and they're looking at what are the models for the future. Now. Mm. What happened to me is that 20 years ago, I had a series of visions about the next era of human civilization. They were incredibly beautiful, at least I can tell you. They were so full of light. I saw that we're going to have a civilization based upon oneness and awareness of the interconnected nature of all of life. Mm. And it was going to be alive in ways we can't even understand now. And there was going to be new knowledge given to humanity. For example, I was shown very clearly waiting somewhere there is a completely free energy source from the sun we can use. All this talk about fossil fuels, it belongs to a past era. And I was shown, I had a number of years, I wrote a whole series of books about them, about this living future that would be quite different from now, a completely different era, that would be alive in a way we can't imagine now. And for example, the the wisdom of the shaman and the wisdom of the Western physician would come together and we'd have new understandings, new wisdom about how the physical body works and its energetic nature. All of that belongs to a new era. And so since then, even as I've seen this cascading crisis that belongs to the end of an era, and here I agree with Greta Thunberg, that it's over. This present civilization is simply unsustainable. And people who think, let's dream of electric cars or wind farms, they they don't see the bigger picture. They're caught in this image of the past, that the only way forward is through this patriarchal, hierarchical, energy-intensive way of life. And because I'm a visionary and a mystic, I was shown something completely different. And my work has been to try to outline the foundations for this new civilization. It's not going to happen immediately. This is, I don't know if you know the work of Joanna Macy, the Mm eco-Buddhist. And for many years, she spoke about the great turning, about returning to a life-sustaining civilization. And she was teaching how to go back to that but then recently she has changed a bit and says we have to have we are going to go through this great unraveling first as this present civilization which is so toxic mm-hmm. becomes unravelled she talks about it being in the bardo which in the tibetan buddhism is a time between death and rebirth and we're in this bardo and you know if if you knew as How toxic this civilization is, and how toxic it is to the soul, because our soul is not nourished. You can have 10,000 things, 10 million things. You know, the Chinese always used to talk about the 10,000 things. Now I say it's the 10 million things, and you look around all the stuff in this world, but it doesn't nourish the soul. And so I've been drawn to think what are the steps, what are the foundations for a a new civilization that nourishes our soul and the world's soul, that we come together in a new way. And it's going to, it's not going to happen right away. When I, when I was shown these visions 20 years ago, I was so excited. And I thought, oh, of course people will want that. But I've now realized that I'm never going to see it in my lifetime that the next hundred years or so are going to be a, we're going to watch a civilization fall apart. But what matters to me is to be prepared for that. There's a, I don't know if you know, you know, Rumi, his his teacher was Shamsi Tabriz, this great, great mystic, incredibly powerful mystic. And he met Rumi one day in the square in Konya. And Rumi was a theology professor and he was, walking by with a great pile of books. And Shams looked at him and said, if those books don't free you from yourself, what is the point of them? And then either he tossed all those books into a well or they burst into fire, depending on what story you like. But this was the time of the Mongol invasions when the whole civilization in the Middle East was destroyed by Genghis Khan and his hordes. And... There's this lovely story that one of Shams' disciples came to him and said, the Mongols are coming, the Mongols are coming, and they're terrified. And Shams said, I've been teaching you to be a duck, now swim. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what do we need to make this transition to a living future? And that's what my work is focused on. And, for example, the other day I saw that the The future, when it comes, needs to have certain foundations. At the moment, we have no foundations in our culture. As Yeats wrote over 100 years ago, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere chaos is let loose upon the world. And, for example, the first central foundation is we need to have respect for women and the feminine. Because without these certain feminine qualities, patience, listening, nothing can be born without respect for for women and the feminine principles. You can't have a rebirth. It's very basic. A man cannot give birth. And we're still living in this, this wasteland of this patriarchal culture has no respect for the divine feminine for the feminine principle and sadly i mean what's happening in afghanistan at the moment is tragic women are not even allowed to go to the park anymore as these ah sorry i get very impassioned by this but it's like if we don't start now to create the foundations for a future for our grandchildren's grandchildren You know, the Native Americans, they talk about seven generations. You have to look to a future seven generations or more. If we don't work for this future for seven generations or more, if we think, let's focus on electric cars, which what what do electric cars do? Yes, they don't pollute the atmosphere, but they create an ecological disaster in Congo where the cobalt comes from. And there's exploitation of children working in the mines is that the basis for a new civilization? Is that the basis for a living future? And so I believe we need a respect for women. You know, I was very fortunate. My teacher was a woman. She was an incredibly powerful woman. She just was herself. She'd been trained by this Sufi master in India, and she was just a beautiful, powerful old woman who, Taught yeah. me so much, and my wife has taught me so much.
0: Well, and and you know, you started the conversation talking about this idea of matter and mm-hmm. that it being this this idea of it being sort of what what did what did Newton call it, lifeless matter? Or, yeah. But matter, the etymological root of matter is is mater. It's mother. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so all of it, in some, is about the desecration of the feminine, mm-hmm. and for men, the disavowal of the feminine within themselves. It's not just on absolutely women. It's not a gendered concept. That's what drives me.
1: No, <laughs> no, it is. It, it so isn't. Crazy. I mean, you know, I was, I was sent to boarding school, all male boarding school, from seven to seventeen, and then yeah. suddenly I was introduced to the world of women. And deep women with a connection to the sacred, to the feminine mysteries. They used to be taught at Elysius in Greece for thousands of years, never written down because they were too sacred. And we lost them. We didn't just lose them. We desecrated them. And we need them because, again, it's very simple. Without the feminine, nothing can be born. That's why my wife got me to write this book, The Return of the Feminine. Because yeah. it's this is a... Primal principle in life, and you can see it in Taoism that had a much healthier relationship to the natural world. Um, yeah.
0: Well, and even the unraveling, what you're writing about the darkness, the, the, the void, right, that we must go through, and we are know. going through small voids, but building resilience and understanding of that yeah. sense of darkness, that's the womb. That is how anything new absolutely emerges. If we die, um, If we dare. dare. But as we know, you know, we were all there, whether we were able to be conscious about it or not, we understand those contractions. We understand the unknown, but Mm -hmm. absent embracing it, we're lost.
1: Yeah. And and we can you know, the my sense is that there are there are many people tragically who are going to be really negatively impacted by the breakdown of our present civilization. And you can see the beginnings of this in in Africa, or for example, the pastoralists in Somalia who've been really hit by the climate crisis and they've lost their herds. And then in the West, you can see these fractures in American culture, for example. My sense is that, that they come from a deeper reason than people realize, that deep in the collective psyche, for example, in America, there is a knowing that the American dream is over, this dream of material prosperity. I mean, it's logically unsustainable. It needs, what, one and a half worlds or three worlds for us all to live like this. And there is this fear, there is this panic that we're never going to have it so good again on a material level. And people are going to be hit by that. People have invested not just their money, but their ideology, their belief systems in material well-being, The next hundred years are going to be very hard. But what I am working towards is how can we create communities that can help in this transition, that are not, you know, that have been trained to be ducks, that can learn to swim (laughs) in this destabilizing time, that have the resilience, that have, I think, for example, to have a simple spiritual practice, even just awareness of breath that can ground you in something other than the mind, other than your material well-being. And I think communities will form and different, all sorts of different communities will grow around that. And they will support people to help them through this time of transition.
0: Yeah. Bill Plotkin's essay, I don't know if you remember it Mm -hmm. intimately, but he talked a lot about, it was really beautiful, about the loss of elders, true elders in Mm -hmm. this world, and supporting the work of true elders who do still exist, and then joining in organizations that could perform cultural eldering as a function of a healthy society. And then he also talks about how it's not necessarily – a true elder is not necessarily someone who is old, but who has reached the developmental stage in which their ability to hear the world itself and their desire to care for the soul of the world has become their number one priority that's a beautiful idea. Yeah, for the soul yeah. of the
1: world. Yes, it needs to be cared for. It needs our love and care and attention, and that's why I love the words of tishna the the Buddhist monk who passed mm. recently, when he said, "Real change will only happen when we fall in love with the earth, because mm. love goes where it is needs to go to heal, to care for, to replenish love and care." And one of my basic principles, love and care for each other and for the earth. You mm-hmm. can't go wrong. And and you can care for the earth in a window box in a city. You can care for it in a garden. You can care for it as you help, as you show your children the, the sky and a sunset. And and we are part of it. We are part of such a mystery, Elise. If you people only knew, and it's waiting to be related to. Again, this is a feminine principle relating. I grew up in a family which nobody related to anybody. And then my wife actually, she taught me to relate. She taught me to listen. She taught me to respect space, how just to be present. And it, it, it is waiting to be heard. The earth is, is so beautiful, such a magical being, and we have abused it. Gosh, we have abused it, and we continue to abuse it. For what? So we can have a faster car, so we can get more things online.
0: Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit spotpet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com sample-policy. Spot pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. One of the saddest things to me, I don't know if you feel this way too, is that in this exceedingly secular and scientific world, there is this idea that you could you cannot can, you cannot believe in multiple things in mm-hmm. our ideology right and mm-hmm. if you are believe in the spiritual or the sacred or that there's more than what we can explain through math and science that somehow you're dumb or intellectually inferior or there's something about the way that it's been structured that to have faith is silly yeah, what is, is control? Also, I feel like, yeah, keeps people away from you know, it is. themselves.
1: I, I always feel it's it's one of the great unspoken tragedies of the present time that this rational consciousness has cut ourselves off, has isolated us from the world around us, and and we've paid it. we've paid enough. There's been enough sorrow. There's been enough. Well, sadly, it's going to get worse because the climate crisis is not going to slow down, and you know. My daughter wonders what world her child will grow up in, and...
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it's this is an Albert Einstein quote that was in the book. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a world that honors the servant, but has forgotten the gift.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, the science has done wonderful things but it's only part, it's only a part of our consciousness. And we have to regain this earlier consciousness, this mythic consciousness, this, Joseph Campbell talks about it, this what every other civilization knew about. And that's what's amazing. Everybody else knew that the earth was sacred. Everybody else knew that it was one living spirit. Everybody else knew that you had to respect it. You had to treat it with reverence. You had to treat it with care, and you know. Luckily, there are some scientists. I don't know if you know the work of Suzanne Simard, who talks about the oh yeah the the the, the wood wide web, and she yeah. combines both a scientific understanding, but also the wisdom of the indigenous people who knew about these microcausal, Is that the right word? networks, these fungal networks long ago, and knew to put salmon bones underneath the trees to nourish them. And she can bring the two together to help us understand it, this mystery of which we are a part and how to work with it, how to breathe with it, how to live with it.
0: Yeah. Love Suzanne. She came on the podcast. Do you feel that the paces that we're going through now, this era was inevitable as a necessary stage for us?
1: And that's That to me is the deepest question. And, you know, 20 years ago when I had all this series of visions and I saw, like Joanna Macy says, we can have this great turning. We can, And I saw the internet as an aspect of that because it has a quality of oneness. Knowledge is everywhere, instantaneously accessible. And I thought we could make this great turning and then i saw all the forces resistant to it these forces of our consumerist culture these corporations these people in power and they don't want that change and there is this darkness behind them as now erupted in the war in ukraine this very inhuman darkness because to me the darkness is something that strips away this human quality that is most important that we've fought so much to Honor, whether in civil rights or in many different ways. And then I saw somehow, I don't know if it was a conscious choice or it was just too difficult. It, it is like this fantasy people have about continued economic growth, which is the basis of our now global industrial economic culture that we can continue to grow. And it's what politicians talk about, economic growth. Now, in the 70s, there was a seminal book written called The Limits to Growth, and it became a bestseller. But then it was immediately repressed by all the governments and the institutions because they were addicted to this, what Greta Thunberg calls this fairy tale of endless economic growth, which is just a story we've told ourselves has no basis in reality. It's just another myth, except it's a very self-destructive myth. And somehow we made a choice to stay with this consumerist story. I hate the way word consumerist, consumer. Mm. Human beings are not consumers. When they, they are incredibly beautiful, sacred beings. One of my... Earliest experiences, at least, mystical experiences. In my twenties, I had a lot of mystical experiences. Then, I was standing by the park entrance to a park, and I saw a group of young schoolchildren. They must have been five and six, walking to the park. I don't know if you have it in America. In England at that time, they used to walk two by two. The, each child would hold the hand of another child. It was called a crocodile. And they were were five or six years old. And they were walking to the park with their teacher. And suddenly the veils were lifted. This is what can happen mystically. Suddenly you see things as they are, like St. Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. Suddenly the veils were lifted. And I saw these young children as they really are. And where their hearts were, there was this incredibly beautiful, bright light. They were radiant beings, so full of light. It was, just took my breath away. I only saw it for a few seconds. You can't see that too much. The intensity would just fry your brain. And that's what human beings really are. We are not consumers. We're sacred beings come to Earth to have a sacred experience. And yet there are forces in this world, and I don't really understand them, because, as I say, I prefer the worlds of light, the world of angels. That want to deny this for us. There's, it's like, how quickly do children forget? What is it Wordsworth said? Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. But then he mm-hmm. says, the prison walls close round the growing boy. And children, I've seen it in both my children and my grandchildren, they live in this magical world. For the first years maybe you've seen it in your own children time doesn't exist you can be my four year old granddaughter was here over the summer and everything is for the first time it's like everything is waking up and then suddenly she can be upset and cry and there are tears and then it's all over an hour later and it's forgotten and it's like then everything is back again for the first time and it's this magical moment and it's deeply spiritual and and yet there are forces that make us forget that the American poet e. e. Cummings said, "And down they forgot as up they grew." That line has always stayed with me. And down they forgot as up they grew. And by the by the time they are eight or something, it's all gone, unless you are mm-hmm. a poet like Dylan Thomas or Wordsworth, and you can remember that shining light of the first day, and why? Why do we have to forget? Why do you you know, if you're on a spiritual path, then you have to spend years doing spiritual practice to regain it, to reconnect with it. And yeah. And all I can say is that all I've ever tried to give my children is that if I held an awareness of it, then they didn't have to forget completely. Yeah. And they could still hold a, a memory of that wonder that is our real self. And that is why, you know, I've worked with dying people as well, because being a Sufi teacher, you work with both babies being born and souls dying. And there is this primal near-death experience, I'm sure you've read about, when you see this light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And people say that it's God. Yes, it's not actually God. It's your own self, your own soul that is waiting for you to reconnect. Mm-hmm. I remember I had one of my students, and she was dying, and I was sitting with her in hospital. And suddenly her eyes, there was this light in her eyes. Suddenly her eyes shone with this incredible light. And I said, ah, I've done my work, and she can go now. Because she'd reconnected with that light while still in this world. And that is, if you like, the completion. What is it? T.S. Eliot said, we arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Mm. And somewhere it is so simple, Elise.
0: I know. Don't you think it's this, like, it is the mixing of the light with the shadow, and now we've, and that's our job, that's the sort of source of energy, is to infuse shadow with light and mix them, Mm -hmm. and that right now we also see, Sort of a disavowal of the shadow of the darkness of that void, and we just want to go to the light. It's like light, oh, no. light, and, the right light and darkness.
1: The light. light and darkness are part <laughs> of the journey. My teacher said before she went to India, she said, I hoped for instructions in yoga, I expected wonderful teachings. But what he did was force me to face the darkness within myself, and it almost killed me. This is the descent into darkness that is central to the mystical path. And I think, sadly, tragically, is going to be part of humanity's journey over the next decades. And I don't think now, I think, whether, it, as you say, whether it was inevitable or it was a choice humanity made, I'm not sure that our children, our grandchildren are going to have to walk that path in a world that's falling apart, in a world whether it's social collapse, as many are preparing for, or just, uh, we've lost our way. This civilization has lost its way. It no longer nourishes the soul. But of course you can never tell that to a politician, just like, <laughs> you, you can't tell that to a business leader. You can't tell that to anybody who wants power because it's not about power, it's about freedom. It's about beauty, it's about wonder. It's about love. You can't buy or sell love. You can't, it's, it, it's free, it's for everyone. You know, I grew up, to say, in a family where there was no love, wasn't even mentioned. And then suddenly I found myself sitting with this old lady in a little room in North London. And there was just this love, unconditional love. It touched every cell in your body. It goes, I remember the first time she cooked a meal for me. I was in my 20s. She invited me to cook and she made Indian fritters with chutney. And I never realized before you can taste love. Mm. I didn't. You you could taste it. She cooked with love. So you could taste it. And, Mm. you know, a little while ago, I wrote a book, 10 practices for reawakening the sacred in everyday life and and cooking with love. That's why I don't like to eat out because you never know what thought forms a person has put into it. (laughs) Cook with love, cook with attention. In fact, the, one of the founders of Zen Buddhism. He learned more from a cook than anybody else. Cook with love, cook with attention, cook with awareness of the earth it's come from. And then you are part of the cycle of life. You are part of this living cycle of generosity. I'm not very good. I don't have green fingers, but my wife's a bit better. But, you know, this year we had some broccoli. We had some tomatoes. We had kale, lots of kale. And just to feel... You know, it doesn't last long because we don't have a big vegetable garden. I don't have green fingers, but just to to feel that you grew the food with love. You watered it with love. You fed it with love. You put compost on it with love and attention. And then you cook it and then you eat it. And it's like you're back. We've lost that. We've lost part of that cycle of life. We don't know where the food comes from.
0: What an honor to have time with Llewellyn Von Lee, who, that was his first Zoom and his first outing post-COVID, so I am very touched and was really touched by that conversation and everything that he said. Many full-body chill moments and was moved to tears a few times. This book, I mean, he's written so many beautiful books, you could just pick one and find enough w- nourishing wisdom for, I don't know, a year. They're just loaded with, <sighs> loaded with, with wisdom. But Spiritual Ecology, which we were talking about today, is a compilation that he put together. And it has Thich Nhat Hanh, Joanna Macy, Wendell Berry, Richard Rohr. So many beautiful essays that was written a decade ago, but is as prescient now as it was then, if not more so. And he writes the introduction and he writes, when our Western monotheistic culture suppressed the many gods and goddesses of creation, cut down the sacred groves and banished God to heaven, we began a cycle that has left us with a world destitute of the sacred in a way unthinkable to any indigenous people. The natural world and the people who carry its wisdom know that the created world and all of its many inhabitants are sacred and belong together. Our separation from the natural world may have given us the fruits of technology and science, but it has left us bereft of any instinctual connection to the spiritual dimension of life. The connection between our soul and the soul of the world, the knowing that we are all part of one living spiritual being. And it is my greatest hope, I know it's his, that we find those original instructions and recover our connection to the earth. He quotes Wendell Berry, who says, The care of the earth is our most ancient and most worthy, and after all, our most pleasing responsibility. To cherish what remains of it and to foster its renewal is our only legitimate hope. Okay, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you or follow me on Instagram at Elise lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS.com. Dot org slash students. That's LLS. Dot org slash students.